Shit Platypus says episode 19. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Miles. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Crown you Nazi bastards! Who did you see? The new Tarantino? Turns out it was about the Manson murders. A late 60s moment? 1969. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert. I, I like totally read before I went to the theater, so I knew that there was gonna be this alternative ending to the Manson murders as the final scene. Yeah. And I, I guess in, in the film, Tarantino's like taking out revenge on Lena Dunham, essentially. Mm-hmm. It was strange because it felt so timely, kind of like tapping into like our moment, which was maybe mirroring this the late sixties moment of despair, um, in weird ways with like the Manson phenomena cropping up in popular culture and, and T V series like he's portrayed in Mind Hunter and there's another series called yeah. Aquarius on Netflix. Um and then also this this new Tarantino film. Yeah, fifty year and anniversary of the Manson murder so it's definitely back um he was a very short man Charles Manson (laughs) yeah he was apparently very short um I guess he told the kids that there was going to be a race war between the blacks and the whites and he was that they were going to blame the Black Panther Party right and that there was going to be like a revolution slash race war and that him and his family the cult would go underground as it was going on and then they would resurface and take over because he said that the blacks wouldn't know what to do like leading society so the whole thing would go to shit and we would just take over uh that was the idea that was like the part of the 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 scam that he was yeah he was like a huckster he was like a scam artist yeah i couldn't read it in any other way but the 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 hippies are the kind of a projection of today's millennials and then you have someone like Nina Dunham feature and Charles Manson historically might have been like this the, I don't know this warped racist or something and it kind of reflects like the despair of the uh, identity politics today like um in this twisted way why identity politics the position that the late millennials have folded into it turns out um they haven't been able to transcend they've inherited like this late 60s position in a twisted way and they haven't been able to transcend it politically it's kind of a capitulation to an undigested late 60s yeah i was trying to sort of pinpoint that in the movie so there's a forget her name but the the hot girl who gets into brad pitt's car and sunshine i don't know sunshine sprinkles or like (laughs) some shit like that yeah and she's like telling him about vietnam Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she's like, people are dying. And like, that's the time. Like, that's that's kind of I was trying to think about when the movie, if at all, like shows these people as giving a shit about anything other than, you know, their little ranch and like uh, getting high and like hanging out. They've got a business going up at the ranch. But yeah, like horse riding in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. They took over. They occupied it. Girl, they occupied that ranch. <laughs> And the dude was into it. The owner was into it. Yeah, by whatever uh, means they occupied the ranch. Like, yeah. I think that girl was fucking that old man. Of course that was going on. Because mm-hmm. she made him very comfortable, right? And he was like, well, that they live here now. Mm-hmm. 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 A lot of reviews of the film 
in the liberal media have painted the Brad Pitt and um, Leonardo DiCaprio character as being like proto-Trump supporters or some shit. I wasn't I wasn't reading it like that when I was watching the film or that wasn't coming to mind. The reason for it, I think, is because they're supposed to represent the two white men, right? They fit into this schema of identity politics that you're talking about. They like are representative of the white people, the white men specifically, um, and the white men that are Trump supporters or whatever. And they get to quote unquote win. And that's what they're like mad about and they don't like about the film. And... I mean, but what's interesting, I mean, I don't, I don't, didn't get that from the film either. I didn't like watch this film and was like, yes, these are the proto-Trump supporters or some shit. <laughs> um, you know, like that's a very strange. What I got is that these two people are, they're sort of also failures in society, right? But they're really trying to get by. Yeah. Um, DiCaprio is kind of despairing at his career and, um, and yeah. the... The stunt actor who has an injury, right, Brad Pitt, yeah. um, is like doing his best at his job, like every day. And um... yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio, like one of the first scenes that we see, Leonardo DiCaprio, he cries in the parking lot, and Brad Pitt's like, "Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> you can't show weakness, right?" But he's like, "I'm a failure. Like I'm over. I'm done. I'm a has been." Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. <laughs> All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. And well, has been. On August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. By the way, the New York Review of Books basically is like, this man has killed his wife. Um, which is interesting because it's like, no, the movie actually doesn't tell you that he does. He might have. And you're supposed to deal with the ambivalence or like the not knowing of who this person is, mm-hmm. right? But no, this is like a women killing Trump supporter white man. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino is, you know, romanticizing these people. And it's so strange. It's like they watch the different movie or something. It's like... Tarantino's been doing this shit where he's quoting like the Western and the bounty hunter and the you know sheriff and all this shit like for years now. And it's like, okay, so what now it's supposed to be for Trump or some shit? I don't know. It's like a poverty and aesthetic imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also um, this inability to deal with um, l- like a non, like a ambivalence in a film or something. That it always has to be like one or the other. So like the, the the article you've just referenced, where it's like where it came down on him as as having like been a wife killer, which is left open in the film. You know these anti-hero hero types in the films that are like liars, cheaters, maybe in it for the money, but then end up doing something good, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there are always these people in his movies, like, and that's part of the suspense of this film too, right? Because I mean clearly the Manson characters we know that are part of this cult and they've killed people and they're like sort of dodgy figures but let's not forget that once upon a time i guess part of the new left had a romance with the mansons uh apparently this meeting by the weather underground uh sharon tate's picture was hung up on the enemy wall and so yeah you were talking about the desperate end of the 60s mm-hmm. right like you know the like fuck the bourgeoisie kill the bourgeoisie yeah or scare them yeah and it's a good thing that charles manson like frightened them or whatever like that's the idea Mm -hmm. 
okay, so why is that back? It seems like the the millennials have kind of just capitulated to this late 60s moment of despair and they haven't overcome it or worked. And it's weird that they kind of inherit this 60s moment, but in a twisted way. So it's like, it's not identical, it's it's changed, but there's still the kind of, the remains of the 60s are there and being and being reproduced in our, in our moment today. Um, me being a millennial, experiencing this generationally. And now you're seeing it and it's popping up in, in, in culture, in film and TV. And maybe we're just awaiting our next Manson murder. I don't know. That's dark, Sophia. <laughs> Chris Petroian said that. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. Kids out there, don't, don't, don't go kill people. That's not. It's violence. And, um, and... Yeah. Violence is not the left. Keep it for the cinema. Keep it for that exquisite fight scene. That flamethrower was great, though. That mm-hmm. flamethrower was good. So it like, shows up first when Leonardo DiCaprio is killing Nazis in one of the films within the films. I've seen it. And he's like killing the fascists, you know? And then it shows up again when uh, the girl is in the pool and he just like lights her ass mm-hmm. on fire and she just keeps mm-hmm. burning. You know what it reminded me of? The accounts of uh, napalm in the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. How people were, you know, when they got napalm on their on their skin, like, you couldn't mm-hmm, put out mm-hmm. the fire. They just, like, burned. Yeah. Like, it was very awful. It's an awful yeah. way to die. And in this film, he's using it to annihilate the hippies, a.k.a. millennials. They are, like, the left is the, well... They they're not they're not explicitly like the left in the film. They're just kind of like the dropouts, like the the hippies. But there is a way in which like um, Suadorno um, touches on this that the the left is the right in this late sixties moment that's inherited in the Tarantino film. Well, you know the millennials today do think that they're out to get the fascists, right? Or shutting down the fascists. Yeah. Mhm. But it's not that black and white. <laughs> yeah, it's like a fundamental like misrecognition of our moment. And it, it does have to do with, like, who are these people anyway that could have wanted something other than the Democrats and why, right? Like, that that question, you know, the assumption maybe of, like, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio as these, like, white, racist guys. Deplorables. The yeah. deplorables, right? I was interested in the film because I found it kind of weird. Like, just because it felt like... It felt ballsy. Yeah, it felt yeah. ballsy. I found that kind of weird because you just expect so much stuff today just to be shy yeah. or like pro-democratic party propaganda. Like I wasn't necessarily expecting that of the Tarantino film, but then I was like, oh, this is kind of ballsy. And it's kind of ballsy for like uh, DiCaprio and Pitt as well. And they were like, yeah, we're going to do this film. Like, as do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, yeah. and also um, Margot Robbie as well. Like, I don't know. I just felt it was kind of bold. Like, I didn't think it was excellent as like a work of art, but I was kind of like, yeah. You have this with like yeah. Dave Chappelle as well. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Good for yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of bold. Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, episode 19. My name is Pamela Nogales, and I'll be joined by Sophia Friedman. In the first segment, I sit down with Platypus member and labor attorney Nick Reitman. Nick gives us an update on the state of American unions, tells us about the recent United Auto Workers corruption scandal, and what the left thinks is possible under Bernie Sanders. 
On the second segment, my co-host Sophia interviews Hillel Tickton, a South African leftist in London who spoke at the CPGB's summer communist university on the fall of the Soviet Union. They discussed the counter-revolution led by Stalinists in power, the atomization of the working class in the USSR, and the legacy of 1989. The new Platypus Review issue 119 is out now and includes What Was Stalinism in Power, the presentation by our member Rory Hannigan at the CPGB Communist University. We'll link that in the episode description. As always, send us your questions, criticisms, commentary, corrections, etc. to our email says at gmail.com. If you're into the podcast, then share it, leave us a review, and if you'd like to know more about what is the Platypus Affiliated Society who hosts this podcast, then go to platypus1917.org. That is the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Here we go. Great, Pam. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I am here with Nick Kreitman, who has been a member of Platypus since 2007. Nick was a member of the new Students for a Democratic Society back in the day. Isn't that right? Oh, you got it. You got my number. Yep. <laughs> and now he is a labor attorney, and he's here to talk to us a little bit about state of the unions in America, and specifically because there's been some controversy in the headlines, some corruption scandal that's been going on in the UAW. Could you tell me what, what's going on? The UAW is the United Auto Workers. They represent uh, more than the auto industry, but in America, they represent what's called the big three, Chrysler, Fiat now, GM, and Ford. Right now, they represent about 150,000 workers at the big three. They represent a, a lot of these parts suppliers for the big three as well that you know over the last 20 and 30 years the big three have been spinning off these companies and and basically offloading you know workers to these former in-house parts suppliers to shed workers off of the uh, pay scales that they pay workers at the big three what's kind of in the news now um, is that we are going into another round of the big three contracts being reopened and negotiated at the same time as this really, you know, unprecedented corruption scandal within the UAW's unfolding in the middle of bargaining. Mm-hmm. So the, the UAW historically, you know, back uh, at its inception was progressive, you know, honest union. I mean, you could compare it to sort of the trajectory of 
the Teamsters or some of the other trades unions that, you know, were a little bit more involved with organized crime. The UAW never had that kind of uh, impetus, uh, you know, behind its growth historically. Um, you know, there's other reasons. When, when was it formed? It was formed in the uh, 1930s, I believe. It could have been a little bit earlier. It's a CIO union, so... Um, you uh-huh. know, it emerged with the CIO on the premise of organizing uh, across industrial lines. So they were part mm-hmm. of the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, where they would not organize uh, specifically by trade in a plant. They would organize all the workers together in one union in one plant. So you'll notice, like for the UAW contracts, they represent pipe fitters, electricians, line workers uh, at an auto plant, what's called skilled trades. Uh, they have their own council within bargaining, but you know the idea was to bring all workers together under one union. And of course, the CIO was you know, historically a, a project of left-wing unionists trying to build a political alternative to the trade unions that organized by trade and you know what were called business unions or business unionism back you know at the beginning of the CIO. So you said that this is a historically unprecedented case that's going on right now. So it's it's massive. It's a massive corruption scandal. I didn't realize it was so massive. Yeah, well absolutely. I mean, so a little bit of background on what's going on right now. There've already been guilty pleas. Uh, so the the beginning of the corruption scandal was in 2011. And I guess a little bit of backstory. So at the, you know, during the Great Recession, Chrysler and GM both went bankrupt. Chrysler was bought out by Fiat, an Italian car maker. And basically, Fiat, Chrysler, they began basically bribing auto worker representatives at the UAW um, mm-hmm. during the, mm-hmm. the bargaining talks in 2011 and then in 2015 to get better contracts. Um, they offloaded... Cash, trips, steak dinners, $1,000 pairs of Louis Vuitton. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I believe the total number, uh, the dollar amount was like $2 million to, to various wow. uh, members of the bargaining team. General Holyfield was a vice president who was uh, implicated in you know, leading the Chrysler unit uh, at the UAW. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, you know, between him and his wife, it was about four hundred thousand dollars to him. I mean, that's where the Louis Vuittons came in, were were to his wife. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and then you had uh, Norwood Jewell, who was another uh, UAW vice president who led the Chrysler negotiations in twenty fifteen. You know, the way the bargaining went in twenty fifteen, Chrysler was the first company. So the UAW always picks what's called a strike target to set the bar for the other two of the big three. So they either pick Ford, GM, or Chrysler to start. And in 2015, they picked Chrysler. At the same time, they are making hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes and payoffs. So so what did this mean for the workers in these plants? You know, it's kind of interesting uh, to get the take of a group called Labor Notes out of Detroit. They're, mm-hmm. They've pretty much been the... Uh, you know, the group that has put out the the most material and, you know, is part of the rank and file organizing movement at the big three and, you know, other industries too, but they got their start in the UAW. 
they actually haven't, you know, thought it was, you know, that earth-shattering. Because they, they pegged the decline in, you know, the UAW and the standards and, you know, really the effectiveness of the UAW as a union back far beyond this corruption scandal. You know, to give a little history of the UAW, it's been run by the same caucus, uh, the administration mm-hmm. caucus, since Walter Ruther, the, you know, the, one of the founding mm-hmm. you know, fathers of the UAW. Um, him and his brother started what was termed first the Ruther caucus, which was a social democratic caucus that beat out the, the communists for leadership mm-hmm. of the union. And they basically have ruled the UAW as a one-party state and you know, named it the administration caucus in 84 uh, at GM. The jointness process um, is really where the change happened in the UAW, where the UAW became part of you know, the management team, essentially, at the big three. Mm-hmm. They were unable to organize at what, you know, what the UAW called the transplants, basically the foreign automakers coming into America to build cars, you know, which was a win from the UAW. They, they mandated you know, that Congress pass restrictions uh, requiring foreign automakers to actually assemble vehicles in America. But you know, once they won that from Congress, mm-hmm. they couldn't organize the the workers at these uh, auto plants, the transplants. So they couldn't organize them. They couldn't bring them on strike or whatnot. So they tried looking at other ways to incentivize workers to, you know, be interested in the union, even though they couldn't maintain density. And you know, they looked at different models in the '80s and late '70s, like how to improve the work life of workers. They look towards the, mm-hmm. you know, the social democrats, the EJ Metal Union, um, which, you know, has this sort of relationship with Volkswagen out in uh, Germany, where you have the Works mm-hmm. Council and you have um, workers brought into management to co-manage the plants, and that's what they a- attempted to implement in a d- number of different projects um, in the 80s. So does that mean that then the way that workers were being organized if you were part of the union is by creating a, a layer of like a managerial class like within the workers? Right, yeah. I mean, it was an attempt to, you know, bring workers in to address their concerns as bring them in as part of management. Eventually, the jointness programs didn't really, it was never a really successful model, either for managing the, you know, the actual production or having a model for social unionism you know the uaw didn't attract uh the you know the workers at the foreign automakers at the transplants to join the uaw on the basis of their you know good relationship with uh you know the big three employers and eventually you know fast forward to today in this scandal um the joint training centers were actually the means by which fiat was transferring you know the two million dollars to the mm-hmm. auto workers um you know they were just paying mm-hmm. it as a slush fund um and now the new mm-hmm. indictments are accusing the former president dennis williams of using the training centers as slush funds for you know bribing basically personal favors you know and personal enrichment i was surprised to um to read in the article that you sent me about these raids that the UAW currently has a $721 million strike fund. I actually don't remember the last time when 
something like a big UAW strike was in the news. Have they had this sort of industry-wide strike in the recent history? Probably the closest widespread strike was American Axle, if my memory serves me right. That was in the uh, 2000s. I believe that was like around 2007, 8, 9. During the uh, bargaining session around uh, you know, the bankruptcies as, as part of the reopening of the contracts in 2009, mm-hmm. the UAW waived the right to strike until 2015. Mm-hmm. So it was huh. the, actually it was the 2015 round of bargaining where the threat of the strike actually came back on the table. They had a mm-hmm. contract bargaining round in 2011, but they were, you know, they already waived the right to strike. So, you know, if they would have attempted mm-hmm. a strike, it would have been found illegal because they had a previous commitment not to do that. That would have been enforceable right. in U.S. courts. Yeah, I have this um, interview that I sent you from Labor Notes with one of the UAW workers. He's like, I have a, I have a Team UAW GM jacket from 2011 with the GM logo and the UAW logo next to each other. And he says that my grandmother, who was a GM worker, would not have understood what planet these people were coming from who designed that jacket. And what he means is that, you know, clearly like what the jacket represents is the cooperation between UAW and GM. And he talks about how, for him at least, the decline is from 2007 onward when the union allowed the two-tier system to take place uh, so that, if I understand correctly, you had to kind of like tier of more veteran workers and then newer workers that got shittier deals in their contracts. You know, that's a, that's an accurate point because there was, you know, sort of that inflection during the 2007 uh, contracts and the 2009 reopening of the 2007 contract during the bottom of the Great Recession, during the bankruptcies. That, you know, they implemented two-tier, which started in the parts plants. So during the 90s, 80s, and 2000s, the big three were spinning off, you know, component manufacturers that once performed work in-house, they spun them off, you know, plants. They would, you know, reopen them under a different name. They would still be in the, you know, big three supply chain, but, you know, now they're no longer on the big three pattern contract and you have to, you know, reorganize them via card check or whatever, and then re-bargain with the part supplier without having the benefit of the pattern contract for the big three. So, you know, in the parts suppliers, Mm -hmm. that's really where the two-tier system began. And then that became implemented across the board in uh, the 2007 and 2009 contracts where, you know, you basically had people coming in at $16 an hour instead of the 28, uh, which was the top tier rate. You know, I think the, I think the, the important thing to keep in mind you know, when we're talking about the 80s and, and sort of that turn, really, you know, the end game for the, you know, social democratic politics. I mean, that's it's always been about, you know, basically having the workers manage the plants as, you know, a political reform mm-hmm. in and of mm-hmm. itself. I mean, mm-hmm. it may or may not be more efficient. It may or may not be better for the workers. Um, clearly, some of the examples that did happen, like Saturn, were, you know, they didn't make money and they didn't make workers happy. But, you know, unless there is some kind of political direction, you know, as part of the project, you know, just the demand itself, sort of the reified demand of, you know, worker control over the plants, you know, that's not socialism. Jacobin's got a got an article that the acceptance of unions in the United States has uh, is at an all-time high. 
the title is Americans are starting to love unions again. And apparently in a Gallup poll recently, there was 64% of support for unions. And uh, they cite that at the center of this is that there have been wages have stagnated, their benefits have eroded. Uh, but more than that, there's been a teacher strike wave uh, across the nation. Well, you know, I would agree with the assessment that the, you know, sort of the high profile teacher strikes have influenced public opinion, right? I mean, it moved a couple percentage points. It's, you know, the highest in, in a number of years. I think the, you know, the movement was about like eight or 10%. And I think a lot of that does have mm-hmm. to do with the high profile teacher strikes. One commentator who I think has uh, interesting things to say, and Platypus has uh, interviewed him a couple times, is Sam Gindin. His perspective is that you have uh, an opportunity in the public sector to raise political issues and tie in you know, demands into bargaining in a somewhat unique way with public sector bargaining. So his idea was always to have public sector you know, unions try and connect the fight for public services with the the workers' demands, um, you know, related to shop floor issues or straightforward collective bargaining. You've seen some of that messaging uh, work, uh, you know, and certainly the innovator of that are the Chicago Teachers Union in 2012. They, you know, took over the union as part of a, a rank-and-file caucus, core, uh, it's called, that sort of set the tone for what happened in this most recent strike wave because they've now become the Chicago teachers, the face of the Chicago teachers union. They've mm-hmm. survived a transition and the president, um, you know, now Jesse Sharkey, who was, you know, a, a former, you know, rank and file member of the uh, International Socialist Organization mm-hmm. is the president of the Chicago teachers union. However, You know, I think it's an interesting question. What happens to the, you know, International Socialist Organization? What happens to Party for Socialism? Uh, Aside from union talk, what's called, you know, feeding, you know, warm bodies to demonstrations and, you know, handing out flyers and and phone banking and such, there really wasn't uh, an uptick in organization of a party for socialism. You know, it sort of got subsumed under, you know, just the Chicago Teachers Union. And we're sort of seeing that continue with the Democratic Socialists of America now that the ISO has been rolled into that. What do you think is is kind of a big question, but, you know, I always hear like, oh, these big unions, you know, they would never they would never support anything other than the Democratic Party. Um, You know, that's just not how it works. And uh, what what would it take for some of the bigger unions to even consider the option of supporting a, a labor party or a candidate running on an independent party for labor? I think you would need to have, you know, probably a unique set of circumstances. You know, I, I think an organization like the teachers union in Chicago might be in a unique circumstance. I mean, the, the issue is, you know, unions are tied to the Democratic Party because that's the decision maker that they have to influence, you know, in in public sector bargaining, you don't want to be on the wrong side of uh, whoever you're negotiating with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the teachers union found that out the hard way when they endorsed Tony Preckwinkle, who got slaughtered. Mm -hmm. You know, she was basically the Cook County machine distilled into a single person. 
um, against some, you know, sort of liberal reformer lawyer, the current mayor who just beat Tony Preckwinkle by landslide, and now they have to bargain with the new mayor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these large national unions, you know, they're so tied to uh, the legal framework for unionism that they don't want to jeopardize, uh, you know, that legal framework by breaking with the Democrats. Yeah. So I think it would probably take, you know, a union that's willing to operate outside the legal framework, um, you know, reviving sort of the economic strike, mm-hmm. you know, that, that would operate outside of the constraints of the Labor Relations Act that would be willing to support an independent political party. So, I mean, I don't necessarily see any of the, you know, institutions of unions. I mean, certainly, you know, unions that completely rely on the labor relations framework um, and that are trying to organize through amending the framework piecemeal through card checks of like SEIU, one of the largest unions that has a lot of service industry jobs or, you know, uh, really any number of the unions, the UAW included, they, they wouldn't want to alienate the Democrats because they, you know, depend so much on trade policy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and they're not organizing via, you know, the strike anymore. They're, you know, trying to do card check at Volkswagen and, you know, failing and Nissan, they lost too. So, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. trying to trying to rely on the legal framework, you're going to rely on the Democrats because they control the legal framework, or at least they're your best shot of controlling it. So you'd have to be able to organize and operate independently of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not necessarily exclusively, but, you know, you'd have to have some sort of uh, basis for, you know, the independence um, you know, if you're going to go against the Democrats. We need like a labor movement that would support militant strike actions and don't just want to become like a managerial class under the union bureaucrats. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, th- right. I mean, of course, that's that's sort of the issue we have now. I mean, because you always have rank and file activism. Uh, you know, that's not going anywhere. That's just uh, symptomatic of society as it is today. You will always have uh, rank and file independent union folks, you know, breaking with, you know, the leadership, breaking with the Democrats occasionally. You know, the issue is really how do you advance the, you know, the politics of building a socialist party? And yeah, I think that's probably the right way forward. But it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting question on on where the spark is going to be. I mean, obviously, you know, where we would focus our attention is a question of great concern to everybody listening on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that there's this need for a kind of militant labor movement that supports things like working outside of the framework, the legal framework, that are not going to be just bound to the Democratic Party. But then on the other hand, there's a necessity to, um, within civil society, make the demand for an independent labor party. But those two tasks may not actually be the same thing. Well, I mean, I think the idea of the Socialist Party, I mean, you you have a certain historical consciousness for cadre of, you know, what society is and, you know, how we got here. That's obviously not the organizing platform, um, but, you know, you have a clarity of what an organizing platform actually is. You know, you don't 
advertise that you know the demands on the organizing platform are socialist you know it's not like medicare for all is socialism or you know co-management of a plant is socialism you know those are all mm-hmm. capitalist reforms the mm-hmm. idea is to raise the political question of why we work in labor you know what is the relationship to labor and try and make it a universal question on everybody's mind that we have to deal with politically as a society that's the goal of a socialist party, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really the distinction between that and the labor party that has socialists in it that, you know, advocates for socialism as basically nationalization of, you know, utilities or plants or, you know, what have you. Do you think Bernie Sanders is going to win? I sure hope so. I sure (laughs) hope so. Okay. Why not? Why not? Okay. Thanks, Nick, for talking to me today. And uh, we'll catch up with you later so you can tell me more about whether or not the the workers are on the rise under Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah. Hey, well, my student loans will be on the fall, hopefully. So that's what we're banking on. Yeah, that's what I'm banking (laughs) on, too. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. All right. See you, Pam. gave a talk at this year's Communist Party of Great Britain's annual Communist University. His talk was entitled Predicting the Collapse of the Soviet Union and this will feature in the interview. The interview also kind of coincides with summer reading group that we do as part of the Plasma's Affiliated Society and this year it was around 30 years of 1989, what was Stalinism in power? And also just recently, a member of the Platypus Affiliated Society, Rory Hannigan, has published an article to the Platypus Review, kind of reflecting on the reading group. We'll post links to all of this below, so you can check it out. I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks for joining us, Hillel Picton. Um, If you could just kindly introduce yourself quickly, Hillel. I was born in South Africa. I was politically active and had to leave in 1960. Came to Britain and then it was a time of some confusion. Uh, Quite a few people had to leave South Africa. And uh, there was a a number of scholarships up. Since I got a scholarship from the Soviet Union, I went to the Soviet Union. And uh, for the next um, almost five years, I was in the Soviet Union. I was first in Kiev, where I learned Russian, and then I went to Moscow University, where I was doing what was the equivalent of a PhD in the Department of Political Economy. And thereafter, I came to Britain, got a, uh, ended up as a 
lecturer and in my last years as a professor. Officially, the title of professor is Professor of Marxist Studies. Does that department still exist or do those courses still exist? No, <laughs> the, the title doesn't exist. And it was in the, um, we, we formed a, uh, a kind of sub-department. It was a centre for social theory and movements. That centre exists, but has been downgraded. And have you been involved formally on the left? In 19, from 1970, uh, for about 18 months, I belonged to the uh, predecessor to the Socialist Workers' Party. That's really about all I, I belong to. My first question is, what kind of political project was Stalinism? <laughs> well, to call it a project implies that it was uh, deliberate. Clearly, it wasn't deliberate. It came into being, as we know, with uh, this assumption of Stalin to power in the Soviet Union in 23, and his full power, I suppose, when he expelled Trotsky in 1927. So from 1927 until his death, there was a, a, a fully Stalinist regime. By fully Stalinist, I mean a, a regime which, uh, in which terror played an absolutely crucial role, which was uh, governed from above. In the case of uh, Stalinism, it was actually uh, led by Stalin. One has to say that by the late 30s, Stalin was in full control. There was no sharing of power. He had, to a large degree, wiped out the left, certainly, and to a large degree, wiped out the uh, intelligentsia and a great deal of the middle layers. He was more or less governing by himself. Few assistants who were afraid of him. It's hard to say that, uh, that anybody else really played anything other than a tertiary role. Stalinism, therefore, as it came into being, was a, a system which uh, had a number of functions. Firstly, what it did do was effectively over time defeat uh, the socialist project put forward by Lenin and Trotsky. It completely wiped it out. As we know, the personnel were, of course, killed. I, I don't think you can overestimate the the nature of, of that terror. The, the fact is that uh, millions were killed. The actual numbers are, are still not uh, fully agreed. The, the KGB came up with a figure of 750,000 killed in the purges. Robert Conquest, I think, comes up with 12 million. I don't know if anybody knows the exact number, but what we do know is that millions were, in fact, killed. So this is unprecedented in, in, in human history. We, we know of the examples of uh, Timur Lane killing millions, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, but they weren't killed um, on the basis of ideas, on the basis that they might uh, not support a regime. This was entirely different. There was a deliberate decision to uh, ensure that uh, the upper layer within the Soviet Union remained in power. If I could like try and pull it, pull the, the view out a bit um, and address it maybe from another angle. So what kind of failure was Stalinism a reaction or accommodation to and how did that determine its nature? Stalinism was a completely new, new entity in human history. After all, 
Stalin was based on the taking of power by the Bolshevik party. It was based on the taking of power by the left. The aim of the left was to introduce a socialist society. Uh, I think they were completely genuine and they began the process. Unfortunately, they, of course, were invaded by the West and they had to deal with the aftermath of the First World War as well. So that it, it never really got beyond the very initial point. Trotsky makes the point that the result of the social democrats not taking power in the name of socialism in Germany meant that the world had entered a transitional period. In other words, the world had entered a transition to socialism, a global transition to socialism. What Stalinism represented was a counter-revolution in this process. What Stalinism did was to stop that transition from going in a regular form. But the world is in a transition because it, it has to move. How was the phenomena of Stalinism stopping the world moving through transition? Firstly, it stopped it in an immediate way through a system of terror. So it wiped out the left, it wiped out, secondly, any hope, as it were, of going to socialism, because who on earth, who on earth would want such an awful entity in the, in the, at, at all? Nobody would actually want it. How is Stalinism a counter-revolution for you? It's a counter-revolution, firstly, because it wiped out the left. The, the flower of the Bolshevik party were effectively killed. It's a counter-revolution because it did not stand for socialist goals. Thirdly, it's a counter-revolution because the, uh, its, its theory is simply a nonsense. Now I want to kind of like bring Trotsky into the picture a bit more. Um, so the left, after the failure of the world revolution, fell into Stalinophilic and Stalinophobic camps, whilst Trotsky attempted to hold up a dialectical critique. For Trotsky, Stalinism was an accommodation to the defeat of the world revolution, um, Stalin called defeat of victory. The Soviet regime was one of crisis management, wherein the official state ideology and the social reality of its, of its citizens were in stark contradiction. How was Trotsky attempting to stay true to Marxism after the failure of world revolution? It would be extremely difficult for any person in, in his position. Firstly, because he clearly didn't expect what, what had happened. Nobody expected it. And nobody expected the depth of the terror. And I think even Trotsky didn't realize the full depth of it. It was very difficult for him to be able to understand where, where it was going. Like... Uh, most people, and like uh, most Marxists, he was optimistic and hoping that things would change. There wasn't anything that he could do with that because he was completely cut off. So the only way in which he could act would be to help people in the West. But in the West, he was effectively cut off too. He was exiled to, to Mexico and effectively expelled from France, Norway, and so forth. So the only way in which Trotsky could... Uh, have an effect was in terms of what he was writing. What do you mean by Trotsky's optimism, or how would you how would you characterize that? Well, there was, as you know, a continuous battle um, over where it still was a worker state, and he kept insisting that it was a worker state. I think we can now say, having seen its whole history, that there's no sense in calling it a worker state. The workers were not in power, and they couldn't be in power and uh, any attempt was met 
ruthlessly. So there was no way that was the case. There, there was no control from below whatsoever. So for, so for Trotsky, that the Stalinism as as an accommodation to the defeat or the failure of the revolution still had within it. It was still a contradictory phenomena that pointed beyond itself um, and required like an imminent dialectical critique, um, which he tried to uphold. It's not just Stalinism that points beyond itself. Mm. It's true that within the Stalinist regime, and obviously I, I was in the Department of Economics, and they were uh, teaching Marx, and, and I was studying Marx. So it's true that uh, people were studying Marx. So there was a possibility of people moving there. They didn't necessarily want capitalism at that time. But it was very difficult to see how you were going to get to a, a, a socialist, a genuine socialist regime. There, there were occasional anarchists. And I don't know if you, you know, but when the Soviet Union came to an end, the strongest group, which was at least to the left, because there was virtually no, there was very little, um, very little socialism, but it was, uh, were anarchists. I, I did meet that. I did meet that kind of person at the time. So you also mentioned in your talk that you gave that during this period of Stalinism that you were living, that when you were living in, in Russia, that um, Stalinism had killed the revolutionary history and memory and that people were repeating Lenin without meaning. What did you mean by that? Well, because, because Lenin was taught. They'd be taught what is to be done. And they would have to um, write essays or they'd have to repeat it back. They would do that, but they wouldn't understand what they're doing. There was no atmosphere really of socialism of any kind. It, it was a backward society. You actually had queues of people standing at the Academy of Sciences to be given uh, whatever for uh, producing a, a machine of perpetual motion. Now, that's impossible. But there were queues of people claiming that they invented it. And what kind of society is it where, where that happens? It's a society which is cut off from the rest of the world, cut off within itself. Okay, my question is, is there, is there anything redeemable about Stalinism? No, I, I don't think there's anything, anything redeemable about Stalinism. Stalinism wasn't the same in every country. One could imagine... Uh, a Stalinist party where the uh, some members or the leading members of the party realized the, the real nature of Stalinism and then simply remained in the Communist Party with, a, with some kind of cover. What did the collapse of the Soviet Union mean for the left? It would have been better, of course, if the Soviet Union could have been converted into a socialist society, but that isn't what happened. In effect, the end of the Soviet Union, given the... Uh, lack of understanding of what the Soviet Union was and the influence of the Soviet Union in uh, preventing the coming into existence of genuine socialist party. The end of the Soviet Union was a step forward. I think that's the only thing one can say. I, I don't like saying that, but I can't see any, any way around it. It was a step forward in, in that it removed a society in which you had what amounted to a form of exploitation and a particular form of ideological control, which kept the world backward. So the fact that it came to an end was a step forward. 
it would have been far better if instead of going in, into what amounted to a uh, anarchic capitalism, they could have gone into a transition period towards socialism. Why couldn't that happen? Well, the forces weren't there for it. Part of the point of Stalinism in its nature was to atomize the working class. It had to do that to maintain itself in power. Obviously, if the working class were organized, it would have been able to, to develop its own thought, develop a theory, be Marxist, and potentially overthrow the system. So the only way they could deal with it was to atomize the population so that the working class was atomized. They weren't able to organize in the factory. They weren't able to organize anywhere. You really couldn't get any kind of organization except in certain circumstances and in certain faraway districts. Like in Tajikistan, it, it was a very backward uh, part of the Soviet Union. It remained very, very largely agricultural right until the end. They could discuss what they wanted. Nobody, in effect, the Stalin regime wouldn't have cared what they what they were saying. Okay, so was was nineteen eighty nine a turn to the left, or why not? Yes, it, in principle, it could have been a chance for the left. There were a number of um, left wing people. They they were too few at the time. Um, I, I remember speaking by coincidence. I happened to be speaking to Mandel about exactly that point. Uh, I remember it was 88, 89 or whatever. And he he actually went there at that time. And I, I discussed it with him. I, I was just very pessimistic about it. So yeah, I didn't see any force. And he, he said, just just wait until I go there. So obviously he didn't, he couldn't do anything. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I think Mandel expressed really the attitude that exists in the West that really did think that there would be an uprising, the working class would be liberated and would be able to act. But it didn't exist as a class, precisely because the regime's aim was to see to it that it wasn't a class. It, it needed a few more years to organize itself. What is the legacy of Stalinism today, 30 years after 1989? Well, unfortunately, its influence has remained to a limited degree and of course it's it's uh, it's going and we, we still don't have a uh, have powerful socialist parties but um, I, i'm sure it will come unfortunately that's one of its main legacies i'm not certain that the left has fully taken in the awful tragedy century of tragedy which it's had to go through well it's understood why the left the left has fully understood why it's been a hundred years in which the left has been unable to develop in which the world has not moved on um so how does how is how is stalinism still with us today well marxism is with us today and it's uh, in effect i think stronger than it has been. But the Soviet Union was the reason why we don't have socialism and why Marxism isn't very much stronger than it is. One of the effects of the Soviet Union no longer being there is that it's no longer an embarrassment and an enemy of the left, because it was actually an enemy of the left. It wasn't just an embarrassment. And the fact 
that is it's no longer there makes it much easier to 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 be a marxist and it's it's much easier for people um, who aren't marxist to to see its strength uh, i'm surprised nowadays when when one actually reads comments um which although they not marxist and they're critical of marxism are, are no longer talking the nonsense that they used to do when they attacked marxism if you read um e- economist remarks the journal economist the remarks are made on the 200th anniversary of marx's death they of course uh, anti-marxist but the comments were at least reasonable and not absolute nonsense which which they used to be and they showed that there was a respect for marx which didn't used to exist so just how just to pick you up on that how would you how would you characterize stalinism as when it was in power as an obstacle to the to the left how was it treated by the left as an obstacle the problem was that stalinism was uh, much more powerful than uh, than the left so uh, the only way the left could treat stalinism was as you would um, a a torturer or uh, a a madman or uh, um, somebody who was who was out to uh, to kill you it's um, obviously it would depend on the particular stalinist grouping that that you were dealing with as to how you would deal with them they they aren't they weren't all the same so uh, often enough you could find a stalinist group where enough people in it understood the ambiguity in which they lived obviously it was much more complex than the way i just put it feel free just to expand on how it was more complex if a stalinist grouping of a group or a group of people or a study group or a revolutionary group of of whatever kind many people in it really didn't know very much marxism anyway and they didn't know much about the soviet union they simply accepted the official line that the soviet union was socialist and was defending them and that it was a wonderful society so their ordinary um, actions could be per- uh, perfectly reasonable in relation to whatever it was so if i suppose somebody who was a trotskyist or left wing would approach them and ask if they could do something or other together i imagine they could work together but in many instances that wouldn't be true if there was any sort of controls or whatever and and the same would apply to particular groups or subdivisions and so on and of course there are there are examples of people who as mentioned by deutsche actually of people who in eastern europe who ended up in positions of of power who knew exactly what was going on knew, knew what stalinism was and simply being themselves in power did their best to help alleviate or make things easier for for people obviously in that sense it's complex it would be very difficult for most people who are honest to know how to act if you were in the system itself 
and you were living well within it and you knew that if you said the wrong words you would fall flat right or fall right down to the bottom or might even end up in prison you might not do anything or you could simply accept what was going on or you could close your ears to it but not everybody did we should wrap up now but thank you for letting me interview you i'm glad to do it seen the little biggies crawling in the dirt and for all the little biggies life is getting worse always having dirt to play around in this has been a production of the platypus affiliated society platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups public fora research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalogue of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org.